Explore Us. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. When we left our cutthroat heroes, Alexander had just taken the throne of Macedonia with his mother, Olympias, at his side. But their position is far from stable. They have to make swift and decisive moves to make sure they stay on top. Grab your sword, a Persian sash, a kick-ass battle outfit, and an iron will. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens, Kayla, Gaia, Mikkel, Jackie, Emily, Wendy, Jessica B., and Anna. My lady presidents, Ellie, Pamela, Dana, Elizabeth M., Nancy, Claire S., Louisa, Meg, Lauren, Elizabeth G., Paul, Karen R., Edie, Jessica S., Caitlin, Sasha, Casey, Lori, Claire K., Audrey, Caroline, Amy, Brendan, Lindsay, Belinda, Eve, Debbie, Cassie, Nicole, Jordan, Kat, Larissa, and Townsend. And here's to the gods and goddesses divine who are contributing more each month than I've asked for. Jackie C., Karen C., Alexis, and Avery. Becoming a patron of the show starting at just $1 a month really helps keep it going. And it gives you exclusive access to over five hours of bonus content and growing. You can also make a one-time donation. Just go over to Patreon and look up the Explores. Alex begins by burying his father with much fanfare. He cremates the body on a huge funeral pyre and builds him a very fancy tomb, including a gold and ivory deathbed. Then he turns to dealing with the threats at his door, both from within and without. There are plenty of external conflicts to wrangle with, a revolt in Greece, Illyrian invasions, Theban upstarts. Philip did a great job of expanding the empire during his time as king, pushing into barbarian lands to the north and east and down south into mainland Greece, turning his mountain country into an enviable empire. For the first time, he brought most of Greece together as a united political alliance called the Hellenic League and named himself its hegemon, or supreme leader. And now Alexander has to keep it together, which means convincing Philip's army that he's their man and up to the task. The best way to do that is to lead them into battle, swiftly achieving such charming triumphs as burning the Greek city of Thebes to the ground and selling all of its residents into slavery. But before all that, there are internal issues to deal with. In these unstable days, he and Olympias have to hurry up and get rid of anyone who might challenge his reign. And so we circle back to Alexander's hard-riding half-sister, Kinane. Her mother, Audata, was an Illyrian princess brought up amongst a warrior culture where girls learn to ride, hunt, and fight with brutal efficiency. And though her daughter grows up running around with Alex and his merry band of fellows, she never leaves her mother's roots behind. Because in truth, Audata was an unwilling captive of this court, and it's likely that in some ways her daughter feels the same, never quite at home. Later, in her teens, she actually marched with Alex into battle, distinguishing herself as a hardcore warrior. 
As Polyanus tells us, She conducted armies, and in the field charged at the head of them. And in a battle against her mother's own Illyrian people, she's said to have gone into hand-to-hand combat with their queen, Kyaria. It's perhaps the only story from the ancient world that pits Lady directly against Lady on the battlefield. In this epic clash, Kinane slays their queen and becomes a Macedonian hero. But despite being a queenslayer and all-around badass, she's still a woman, and so has little control over her fate. Before he died, Papa Philip II gave her in marriage to her cousin Amintas, and eventually gave birth to a daughter, Adia. When dear old dad dies, she goes to her husband and is like, Hey, Amintas, the throne is ripe for the taking. Shall we swoop in? Cut some people up? And he's like, Um... That sounds like a lot of work. Which is a huge mistake, because Alexander sees the threat a mile away and has Amintas dealt with. He leaves his sister alone, though, freshly widowed, even though she refuses to marry again. And later, when Alex tries to marry her off to a non-threatening king named Langerus, he will die of a rather mysterious illness. We can't know what it is, but I'm gonna go ahead and call it poisoned winitis. So Kinane settles down to raise her daughter up to be a warrior goddess, probably just biding her time. After Amentas, more deaths follow. That guy Atlas who insulted Alexander's honor? See ya! A few other haters who don't like the new regime. Bye! But the most unsavory of these executions is carried out by Olympias herself. Philip's latest wife, Cleopatra, and her baby fall onto Olympias's chopping block. This is where her uncanny resemblance to Circe Lannister comes into very sharp relief. We have a couple of versions of how she does the deed. Some say that Olympias drags them both over a burning brazier. Another says that Olympias kills the baby in front of Cleopatra and then forces the woman to hang herself. Yet another says that Olympias sends Cleopatra three things, a rope, a dagger, and a vial of poison, and lets her choose which way she wants to go out. Ancient scholars maintain that this savagery is motivated by the desire for revenge against the woman who dared marry her husband after her. Alexander kills someone and it's political. Olympias does it, and it's because of jealous rage. But that's more likely to be ancient writers' tendency to see women as emotional harpies rather than any sort of objective truth. I'm not saying it's nice, this whole business, but we're in a cutthroat court where rivals are dispatched out of necessity, and Cleopatra's death by hanging isn't the worst way to go in terms of honor. If she had to die, this was the way she would have preferred it, a private death away from the prying eyes of court. Olympias makes a ruthless tactical decision to kill a woman and her child to make sure they'll never rise to challenge her son. And it teaches the court something important. If you mess with the snake that is Olympias, you can expect to get the fangs. In 334, once things have chilled out at home a little, Alex prepares to ride off on his big, decade-long adventure, the one where he conquers most of the known world. I can just see her now, standing proud and stoic as she watches her 20-year-old son ride into the morning sunlight. Little does she know that she will never see her son again. Alexander follows on from where his father left off, squaring up against the major superpower who has been harassing Greece for decades the mighty and formidable Persians. 
I'm not going to talk a whole lot about Alex's campaigns and tactics, though they're worth diving into. I'll link you up to some videos in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Suffice it to say that when Alex and his 40,000-strong army cross the Hellespont and start attacking Persia's satrapies, different regions ruled by governors, he makes a strong and brutal impression. The Persians call him Alexander the Accursed because of how much grief he gives them. All the while, Olympias and Alexander write letters back and forth. We can't be sure that any of the snippets we have of their correspondence are genuine, but they hint that Olympias has a lot to say about Alexander's decisions and that he doesn't always take her advice to heart. Ancient historians painted as a classic overbearing mom calling the dorm situation. I can just picture Alexander holding the phone away from his ear as he wanders around in his boxer shorts. Yeah, mom. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Alex does send her some plundered booty, though, and she makes offerings for him at such far-flung places as Athens and Delphi, praying for his triumph and safe return. And though she wields a lot of power at the Macedonian court in his absence, she's not acting as regent. No one is. Alex has left his father's old commander friend Antipater more or less in charge, and these two have a very uneasy relationship. Plutarch confidently tells us that Alexander did not allow her to interfere in his affairs or military matters. But that doesn't stop Olympias from trying. While Antipater tries to keep her from meddling too directly in military operations, she tries to influence things as much as she can, participating in all kinds of international diplomacy. She and her daughter, now the queen over in Malasia, use all the tools in their royal women's arsenal. They buy, sell, and donate supplies to different countries, cementing alliances and reminding anyone thinking of rebelling who's in charge. Her acts of philia, or friendship, help to keep this new Greek landscape together. Ancient historians like to paint her as more of a hindrance than a help, more a wannabe ruler than an actual influencer. But the fact remains that while her son is out conquering, someone is keeping things together in Macedonia, keeping any pretenders from swooping in and keeping his allies from getting too big for their britches. And while she can't get all the credit, it's easy to imagine crafty, calculating Olympias pulling the strings behind the scenes, always fighting to ensure her son's continued legacy, shaping the political landscape in any way she can. As we know already, she's not a woman who likes sharing, and Alexander has some influential favorites by his side as he goes about conquering the world. One is a guy named Hephaestion, who has been one of Alex's closest friends since he was a teen. They're not only best friends, but many say lovers, which is par for the course in the Macedonian court, as we've discussed, but there's an issue. Alex is a fairly young, effeminate-looking guy, and many whisper that he's playing the woman's role in the bedroom. And as we know, this is a thing for which the Greeks are not down. When Alex and his BFF get to Troy, they make sacrifices at the shrines of Achilles and Patroclus, two war heroes who were also very, very close. It doesn't help that Alex is very taken by Persian fashion. As Diodorus Siculus tells us, He put on the Persian diadem and dressed himself in the white robe and the Persian sash. These are outfits his soldiers find scandalous indeed, and also effeminate. While we're talking about Persian fashion, did you know that the Persians were the first to wear high heels? 
They're invented to help them stay in the saddle while riding their horses. I don't know if Alex is sporting any, but I like to imagine he is. Diodorus tells us that, in her jealousy, Olympias writes threatening and harsh letters to Hephaestion. Like all young boyfriends everywhere, he probably just laughs and rolls his eyes. Damn, your mom is scary. But mom does have a point. If he wants to stay in power, he needs to start popping out some little airlets right quickly. He gets what she's saying. He knows he needs to wife up. But right now, he's busy stabbing things with his non-metaphorical sword. After defeating Persian King Darius III at the Battle of Issus in 333, Alexander keeps on trucking, heading south into Syria, Phoenicia, Judah, and Egypt, where they celebrate him as their pharaoh and pre-stub him a son of a moon. He then turns east to take over Babylon, Susa, and Persepolis, on and on into the distance, pushing out farther than any Greek has gone before. He advanced to the ends of the earth, says the first book of Maccabees. He ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. But he is meeting some ladies in his travels. In 330, Alex pushes into Amazon territory near the Caspian Sea. Plenty of tribal leaders come to pledge fealty to this mighty warrior. It's there, the story goes, that he meets the mighty Queen Thalestris. She's traveled a very long way to get to his camp with her 300 warrior women on horseback. And she has one goal in mind, to have Alexander's baby. As Diodorus explains, He was the greatest of all men in his achievements, and she was superior to all women in strength and courage. Presumably the offspring of such superlative parents would surpass all other mortals in excellence. And he's like, I mean, I'll do my best. And so he does, for 13 days. Gotta give it your very best effort. But it isn't all rolls in the hay he's having. Perched at the very edge of the known world and feeling homesick, his troops are getting tired of Alexander's ceaseless need for conquest. At Marikanda in Sogdia, in modern-day Tajikistan, he gets into a drunken argument with one of his best generals, called Cletus the Black, and kills him. He feels bad about it later, but his extreme arrogance is starting to wear on people's nerves. What's worse, he then tries to get his troops to perform the Persian act of proskinesis, that is, prostrating themselves in front of their king, something they consider a blasphemous act. And so, Olympias' son is starting to have to worry quite a lot about assassination. It isn't until 327 that he finally marries, the daughter of a Bactrian lord named Roxanne, or Roxana. Apparently, he falls in love with her immediately, though there may not be any more truth in that than in the story of young Olympias and Philip. The marriage does help put down local resistance against him, but apparently he marries her despite some pushback from his companions and generals. There will be a few other wives to come, all of them foreign. In 324, he marries Tatira II, one of Darius III's daughters, whom he's been carting around with him as a prisoner of war for years. Sounds psychologically healthy? While he's at it, we think he also marries Parisatis, the youngest daughter of Artaxerxes III of Persia. 
These marriages are only two of many that happen at what's called the Susa Weddings, during which Alex has hundreds of his officers marry Persian noblewomen, thus forcing the two to mix and mingle in ways he hopes will ensure that everyone gets along. He also marries his BFF Hephaestion off to one of Darius's other daughters, hoping their children will still be related. One big, really confusing family. In 326, he meets another captivating lady as he burns his way through modern-day Pakistan. He marches into the territory of the Asakani people. When their leader, Asakanas, dies in battle, his mom, Cleophis, takes over, and eventually she strikes a deal with Alexander. She must be very persuasive, because he allows her to remain in charge of the area. Some later sources, though questionable, say that she even bears him a son. What long-suffering wife number one is doing during all this is anyone's guess. Meanwhile, back home in Macedonia, Olympias is leaving the court and going back to Molossia. Perhaps things have gotten too complicated with Antipater. Letters between Antipater and Alexander accuse her of being an interfering shrew, and she writes back complaining that he's taking more power than is his due. However cutthroat, calculating, and malicious Olympias might be, it's all to keep her family in power. And so eventually she persuades Alex that Antipater's up to no good and he should be demoted. He commands the general to meet him in Babylon, but Antipater sends his son Cassander instead, which royally pisses Alex off. By this point, Alex has conquered the world's largest empire. It seems like he's unstoppable, a living god. But just as he's plotting to march into Arabia, he gets some sort of mysterious disease. After almost two weeks in bed with severe stomach aches and fever, he dies in Babylon, aged just 32. We aren't sure how he dies. The theories range from alcoholism to typhoid to poisoning. One recent scholar suggests that maybe he had Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare autoimmune disorder that causes our immune system to attack healthy cells in the nervous system. That may be why he doesn't start decomposing for many days afterwards, because he's paralyzed but not actually dead. What a way to go. One thing we know, to the last, he loves his mother. According to Curtius, after he was given a very dangerous wound in India, Alex said he wanted to consecrate her to immortality, to make his mother a god just like him. When Olympias receives the news, we can only imagine her anguish. Her boy, who she hasn't seen in years, has died far from home where she can't clean his body and bury him. Everything she's worked for, gone. But this is also the moment when she truly steps out of her son's shadow at last and finds a way to come into her own. But before she starts putting on her armor and taking names, I have a friend to introduce you to whose show I think you're gonna love. Hey, fellow fans of the Explores podcast. I'm Lantern Jack, host of a podcast called Ancient Greece Declassified. What I love about Kate's show is the spotlight she shines on badass women in ancient times who, despite not enjoying the political rights that women in more recent times have fought for and won, still managed to alter the course of history. If season two has made you curious to know more about the ancient Greek world, then why not supplement your journey of exploration with my show, Ancient Greece Declassified? We dive into ancient Greek mythology, politics, entertainment, literature, philosophy, all that jazz, as well as the many uncanny parallels between ancient Greek society and our current moment in history. Again, that's Ancient Greece Declassified, and now, on with the show.
Alexander leaves a giant hole in the world he's just spent years creating, and a steaming pile of chaos descends in his wake. The big issue is that there's no clear princeling to succeed him. Alex's dying words to his generals about to whom the throne should go, to the best, didn't exactly help. The epic Greeks of old often had a clear hierarchy within their army, with guys like Achilles being dubbed what author Madeline Miller calls Aristos Achaion, or Best of the Greeks. But Alex tried to keep all of his bros on the level, and always on their toes about who was his favorite. Which means that when he's gone, everything is disaster. The two main contenders are both problematic. First, there's Aridaeus, that dim-witted half-brother Olympias supposedly poisoned, who isn't capable of ruling on his own. But for those who want to wield him as a pawn for power, that might not be a bad thing. But there's also Alexander's wife Roxana to consider. She's about to give birth to a baby who may in fact be a boy. And then there are all those royal bros, who we'll now call the successors, who start acting like kings the minute their number one friend expires. There are a lot of players in this drama, but we're only going to call out the important ones. We'll see three wars erupt over the next few decades for control of the Macedonian throne, called the Wars of the Diakai, and Olympias will play a major part in two of them. Bear with me, friends, this is a very tangled web we weave. In 322, as the army makes the long march back to Macedonia with Alexander's body, everyone's on edge and wondering what's going to happen next. One of Alex's top bros, a guy named Ptolemy, has the bright idea to steal his buddy's corpse and run off to bury it in Alexandria, Egypt. The idea being that the populace there will accept him as their pharaoh if they think Alexander sanctioned it. Which, by the way, works a treat. He's the first in a long line that will lead to Cleopatra, the last killer pharaoh queen of Egypt. And so war number one begins. Back in Macedonia, two very different camps are forming. Team Philip Aridaeus and Team Baby Alexander IV, Roxana's newborn son. Meliager steps in to serve as regent for Aridaeus, while Perdiccas joins up with Team Alexander. If only Macedonia supported lady regents like in Egypt, this is the moment Olympias could have pulled a hat Shepsut and stepped up to the throne. Instead, all of her hopes hinge on Roxana's baby, Alexander IV. What are the chances in all this chaos that baby's going to make it to the throne without being assassinated? Lucky he's got a not-so-secret weapon, a grand momager extraordinaire. Eventually, Olympias will tell Roxana to come to Pella, where she and baby Alex will be safe. But she has some pressing concerns to deal with first. Antipater is still ruling in Macedonia alongside a guy named Craterus, and Olympias still hates him with a fiery passion. Pretty much right away, she starts crying for Antipater's blood. From her seat in Molossia, she tells anyone who will listen that it was he and his sons who poisoned her Alexander, and she wants to see them punished. By doing so, she reminds everyone who she's related to and ensures she and her daughter Cleopatra aren't going to get lost or killed in the ensuing power struggle. And that struggle isn't just going to play out on the battlefield. It's also going to happen in Macedonia's marriage market. And as the full-blooded sister of Alexander the Great, Cleopatra has a major part to play in what comes next. At this point, Cleopatra's already spent some time as regent for her children in Molossia. 
Her husband died at war in 331, and she's been running things for her two kids, dealing with grain shortages and keeping in close touch with her conquering brother. Now that Alex is dead, everyone's trying to solidify their power by either wiping out their enemies in battle or marrying women who will help them form alliances or tie them more closely with Alex's family line. In this way, royal women have a big part to play in consolidating and centralizing power. Since Cleo is his only full-blooded sister, every one of those royal bros wants to put a ring on it. But she doesn't wait for them to propose. She chooses which one will suit her best and makes the first move. She sees this as a means of protecting her family, but also of making sure the throne stays where it belongs, in her family's hands. And that means, of course, in hers. Because who better to rule than Philip II's daughter? Get it, Cleo? She gets busy putting the moves on royal bro Leonidas, who she sees as a strong pick and someone who can get rid of Philip Aridaeus. Knowing he'll look better if he goes down south to help subdue some Greeks, who are currently revolting against Macedonia, he heads down to a battle at Lamia. And there he's killed, and Cleo has to move on to the next. She goes to Sardis in Asia Minor, where both kings and their armies are, and sidles on up to Alex IV's regent, Perdiccas, with Olympias's support, expressing interest in marrying him. He's keen as well, as their union would help unite the empire and let him rule for the foreseeable future. But there's an issue, which is that he's already engaged to Antipater's daughter, Nikia. And if he tries to break it off, it's likely a whole lot of stabbing will ensue. He gently puts Cleo off, biding his time until he can break with Nikia without causing a war. But when Antipater and Craterus find out what he's planning, hostilities ensue, eventually ending with Perdiccas being murdered by his own men. Cleo's suitors sure do suffer a high casualty rate. Meanwhile, Alex's sister Kinane isn't sitting on the sidelines waiting for all the drama to die down. She sees her half-brother's death as an opportunity, and she isn't going to pull an Olympias and try to manipulate it from behind some curtain. Though she's only in her 30s herself, she rushes with an army toward Babylon to offer her daughter Adia to Philip Aridaeus in marriage. But Perdiccas isn't having it. He sends our old friend Antipater to cut her off in Strymon, where she gives him a spanking with her superior battle tactics and continues right on her way. But he tries again, this time sending his brother Alcides to lead the force. He and Kinane grew up together at court, so the hope is that she'll see him and her feminine heart will melt into a puddle of feminine essence. Instead, she rides right up to him, says, Hey, you want, you want Noah? You want to hear a secret? Just come here, come here. Just get a little bit closer. Just a little bit closer. Just come here. You're a dick. And gets ready to rumble. Polyanus writes, The Macedonians at first paused at the sight of Philip's daughter and the sister of Alexander. Undaunted at the number of his forces and his formidable preparations for battle, she bravely engaged him, resolved upon a glorious death, rather than stripped of her dominions except a private life. Unfortunately, Alcides chooses that moment to kill her. R.I.P., you warrior queen. Then Alcides claps his hands and says, Mischief managed. But he is decidedly incorrect. 
When his Macedonian army sees him kill Kanane, Alex's sister, and a Macedonian legend, they throw down their swords and demand that Adia be married to Eridaeus anyway, and she makes sure the troops continue to remember that she's a member of the Argiad dynasty they'd fought for for so long. Let's not forget Alexander's wives in all this drama. Somewhere in this time period, we think Roxana manages to murder both of Alexander's other wives. Plutarch, of course, gives us wild jealousy as her motive. Okay, Plutarch. But perhaps it's just to ensure they won't cause any trouble for her son in future. I'd rather picture them all running away and forming an all-lady commune and kidnap recovery group on some sunny island somewhere. But alas, the ancient sources don't offer us such an ending. Cleopatra stays in Sardis, in the heart of the action, even after she hears about Kinane's death, knowing it's a dangerous game she's playing. She will go on to be chased by Cassander, Lysimachus, and Antigonus. In this game of razor-blade chess, she'll refuse them all. She grew up with these boys and probably knows just how to treat them mean and keep them keen. Being Alexander's sister makes her that prime jewel that all of them want to win. It gives her power, but it also puts a target directly on her back. If she doesn't marry the right suitor, or doesn't marry at all, it could spell the end of everything. The stakes couldn't be much higher for Olympias and her daughter now. Over in Olympias's court, things aren't looking great. Perdiccas is dead, so he's no longer in charge of Team Alex. Craterus and Meliager are dead too, wiping a co-ruler of Macedonia and another king regent off the board. But in the battle for Macedon, that crusty old Antipater still has the upper hand. But then he does her a solid and dies of old age complaints in 319. He's elected another one of Alexander's commanders, Polly Perchon, to replace him, and he is much more Olympias friendly. He invites her to come on back to Pella to take over the care of her grandson. She refuses him a bunch of times before realizing it's the only card she has to play if she wants to stay in the game. And it's a dangerous card, too. She could be walking into the lion's den, where those in charge are just as likely to kill her as anything. Meanwhile, Antipater's son Cassander is still alive and causing trouble. Plus, Kinane's daughter Adia, now called Eurydice, is officially married to King Philip Eridaeus and is feeling pretty large and in charge. She's crafty, too. She's been wooing the unstable Macedonian army over to her side, getting them to listen to her instead of the male commanders, and making sure they get the back pay they've been promised to sweeten the deal. She's pulling all the strings behind her husband's throne chair and has made an alliance with Cassander that threatens everything Olympias holds dear. It's a tense time for these female dynamos. Olympias knows that if she can't keep young Alexander IV alive until he's old enough to command his own army, she and her dynasty will be snuffed out. Eurydice is vulnerable because she has no heir, and if her half-wit husband dies, one of those wily successors is likely going to force her to marry them. And thus, in this epic Game of Thrones, we see Lady pitted against Lady, and they're about to take this squabble outside. Their armies meet in the fall of 317 at the Macedonian-Molossian border. Olympias rides in with her nephew Eocedes, now king of Molossia. 
Polly Perchon and both of their armies. Eurydice marches in without Cassander having arrived yet, but with plenty of Macedonian troops in tow. Though neither of these women technically command these forces, they are most certainly at the head of them. Duris tells us that Eurydice dresses in full Macedonian battle gear, while Olympias is decked out as a worshipper of Dionysus, hopefully complete with several snake armbands. I like to imagine her astride her horse, hair whipping in the wind as she stares down at her army, ready to go all in for this last epic bid for power. As Alexander's mother, she knows the power and awe she can inspire if she works it. When the opposing army sees her there, looking regal and resplendent, they abandon Eurydice and switch sides to join Olympias. Without Cassander having arrived to back her up, she can do nothing but surrender. We think this is when this 50-year-old queen mother takes on her final title, Stratonice, which means victory in battle, because what's the point in being awesome if you can't brag about it? And right now, she has more power than any woman in the Greek world. I'd love to linger over her triumphant ride back to Macedonia, basking in the glory of a decades-long fight won. But her victory is short-lived. Within a year, she'll be dead. But before we feel too sorry for her, let's talk about what she does following her victory. First, she not only has Philip Aridaeus and Eurydice captured, but bricked up in tiny prisons with only a mail slot to receive their food through. When the courtiers express pity for this grisly ending, Olympia says, Ugh, fine. You're all so boring. And puts them out of their misery. She has Philip stabbed, but she lets Eurydice choose her own ending. That ending is by hanging, the death of choice for royal women of this time and place. But the trouble is she doesn't stop there. She kills Cassandra's brother Nicanor and defiles the tomb of his other brother Aeolus in revenge for her son's untimely death. Not her best idea. She, in a move that Justin calls more feminine than royal, points her finger at 100 of Cassandra's closest friends and says she thinks they're gonna have to go. The whole thing, which Pausanias calls unholy, makes her a whole lot of enemies. And while I think we have reason to consider this testimony of her actions fairly suspect, it does seem as if Olympias was, much like her Trojan war-going forebears, big on getting revenge and on an epic scale. Is this behavior any worse than so many of the men acting around her? Not really. But she's a woman in charge and indulging in violence, and that is something Macedonia cannot allow. Sometime soon after all this goes down, Cassander abandons his campaign over in the Peloponnese and marches himself back to Macedon, pissed as hell about what Olympias has done to his friends and family. And though Olympias and her buddy Polly Perchon must know he's coming, they don't seem to be that well prepared. He heads out to try and cut Cassander off, but he's stymied at every turn by Cassander's smart moves and a bunch of desertions. Soon there's nothing between Olympias and her foe. We can only imagine her thought process, flee into the mountains and leave her life in the Macedonian court behind her, or stay knowing that's what a Trojan queen would do, proud to the last no matter what lies in store. She digs in, hoping more allies will come to her aid, but they don't, and before long, she's in a serious siege situation with not enough food to wait it out. 
Then Cassander shows up and, after an aborted escape attempt, Olympias is forced to yield. And while some ancient scholars want us to believe that her people don't fight for her because of her brutal actions, it's more likely because they know it isn't a fight they can win. For a while, he promises to spare her life, but, shockingly, he changes his mind and puts her to death in 316. She's put on trial, though she must know it isn't one she'll ever escape alive from, and we aren't clear on how she actually dies. Pausanias tells us that the Macedonians stone her to death. Let's hope not. Justin gives her a little more noble drama, saying she goes out to meet the forces armed against her in full royal regalia with a bunch of her loyal handmaids. When the crowd sees her, they're reminded of what a goddess she is and find they can't kill her. So Cassander has to send relatives of people she's killed to offer, as no one else is willing to finish the job. When they come, she doesn't shout. Instead, she dies like a warrior. And, as Justin has it, you could see Alexander even in his dying mother. Diodorus says that Cassander casts her body out unburied. Much like her ancestor Achilles once dragged Hector behind his chariot, he desecrates her body and her memory by leaving her in the dirt. Luckily, someone buries her against his orders at Pinda, encased in the ashes of her own ambition. Meanwhile, Cleopatra's been under house arrest at Sardis ever since Antipater died, 12 years in total. Her son takes the throne of Molossia and is dethroned just a few years later. Her mother dies, and she can't do anything to stop any of it. Desperate, she tries to escape Sardis and fly into the arms of Ptolemy, now pharaoh of Egypt. But she's caught and killed on the orders of Antigonus, one of the other generals. He gives her a lavish funeral and probably feels kind of weird about it. She was just too important and too crafty to be left alive. After decades of maneuvering, Olympias's dream of a grandson on the throne is not to be. Once Cassander takes over, he marries Thessalonike. Remember her, that other one of Alex's sisters? Who will go on to bear him three sons and kickstart a whole new dynasty. One of those sons, aptly named Antipater, will go on to murder her. So, messy deaths for these women all around. Cassander puts Roxana and Alexander IV under house arrest. They will die in 310, ending the Argiad dynasty for good. The empire her son built is split up between his royal bros, each one of them taking a chunk of it with them and starting their own dynasties, which will go on to change history. The Hellenic world Alex created, and the one they help continue, will shape art and culture all over the world for centuries to come. But the Eocid dynasty, Olympias's people, still lived on in Macedonia. One of the best preserved of their gravestones reads, I am of Eocid descent. Neoptolemus was my father. My name was Alcamachus. One of those descended from Olympias. The fact that she's mentioned as a forebear to be proud of speaks volumes of the legacy she left. Think what you want about her tactics and the brutal decisions made by the women around her. But in a world where women mostly couldn't rule, this steely-eyed maneuverer pulled important strings, raising her son up to be one of the most successful conquerors of all time. 
and in doing so, Olympias claimed a lot of power for herself, influencing the Greek world for decades. Ruthless, violent, and cunning, she was all of these things. She was also proud, loving, ambitious, determined, fiercely loyal, and believed enough in herself to accomplish what few other women could. And with that, we come to the end of our time in ancient Greece. Though we'll continue to feel their influence as we travel on into our next ancient empire, the fascinating juggernaut that is ancient Rome. Get ready for more epic schemers, lady poisoners, female pharaohs, and rebel warrior queens. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you dig the Explorers, tell a friend, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, or spread the word however you can. It really does make a world of difference. You can also support the show by becoming a patron, which gives you access to sneak peeks and exclusive bonus episodes. For show notes, including a list of my research sources, a transcript, images, and more, head on over to my website, theexploresspodcast.com. Speaking of pictures, check me out on Instagram. I think you'll find my Insta game is pretty strong. You can also find me on Twitter at The Explores Pod or Facebook at The Explores Podcast. Some of the drama-filled music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Kai Engel and Kevin McLeod, whose work you can find through links in the show notes. A special thanks to the following podcast legends who kindly contributed their vocal stylings. Allison, who plays our Olympias, whose podcast 10K Dollar Day takes you on dreamy vacations around the world without ever leaving your couch. Sean, our Plutarch, who reads you stories on his podcast, Stories of Your and Yours, in the most soothing voice you'll ever hear. Ray from the Woman's Planning Podcast, who answers all your burning questions about the ladies. And Ryan, whose podcast, The History of Ancient Greece, dives deep into that ancient world and is where you should start if you want more ancient Greece in your life. Their podcasts are some of my very favorites, so check them out. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks also to the kind friends and family who never fail to delight me with their voiceovers. Philip Chevalier, who played our Philip of Macedon, John Armstrong, Ray's delightful husband, Ian Gench, and Paul Gablonski. Thanks, as always, to Paul Gablonski, a.k.a. Mr. Explores, for my theme music and logo, and all the amazing pieces of art we've been collaborating on this season. Thank you.